Welcome to the Build My Online Store podcast, where we discuss everything and anything about running an online store. If you like the podcast, sign up for the mailing list to get news and updates at buildmyonlinestore.com. And now, here's your host, Terry Lynn. Welcome to episode 54 of the Build My Online Store podcast. I'm your host, Terry. And this week, I've got Jimmy Hayes from Minal on the show, where we're going to talk about getting a product made, uh, working with suppliers, processing the feedback from early adopters and customers, and kind of his experience from just getting uh, travel accessories made. So one thing you'll realize in this episode is that making your own product really is a different path than, say, dropshipping, where uh, traditionally the product is already made somewhere else, and you're just kind of the middleman uh, getting it to the end customers. So uh, when you're making your own product, you know, it's very ambiguous because you have the ultimate creative control over your product. And so we're going to hear Jimmy's story, uh, kind of the lessons and mistakes he made along the way. And so for anyone that wants to get into this, I think this is a great primer to let you know what you can expect down the road, especially even if you're making something like bags or pants that conceptually sounds simple, but just working with all these designs, materials, understanding what goes into the process, it's a whole uh, kind of other world that's interesting to get into. So before we start, I want to get into some news and updates. Part two of the case study on how I sourced a product in China will be live later this month. Uh, right now, I'm shipping out the first batch of orders in the next one or two days. So once this is taken care of, I'll have some time to recap everything that happened. So this uh, basically includes after part one. Uh, so it'll be the pre-sale page, uh, the shopping platform I use. Uh, you know, just getting cardboard boxes, bubble wrap, fulfilling the orders, you know, custom forms, all this stuff. So a lot of good stuff that's upcoming. Uh, stay tuned and join the mailing list to make sure you get this right away as soon as it's published because this is something you don't want to miss. So with that being said, let's get into this week's episode. All right, Jimmy Hayes from Minal. What's up, buddy? Who are you and what do you do? I am a guy straight out of New Zealand. So you might have heard of it. It's not Europe, as a lot of people seem to think, and it's not part of Australia. So just clearing those things up um, before we start. I'm one half of a, a business that uh, is developing travel gear. So the co-founder, my co-founder Doug and I have known each other since 2006. We met on University Exchange in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, and I'd say we, we first bonded on our 16,000-mile road trip around North America. We had five people sleeping in a Plymouth Grand Voyager uh, in Walmart car parks around um, a bunch of states and in, in three different countries. Uh, and that gets you yeah bonded very quickly. After that, we entered corporate life for a while, but uh, basically we couldn't stop traveling. So we figured if we're Ruining our careers anyway, why not try and make travel work for us? Plus, we had trouble finding the right type of travel gear when we traveled, so it seemed to make sense that that we uh, launch our own travel gear. Mm. So it's kind of like a work-life blend type of thing where you're integrating your lifestyle with the business you want to build. Exactly, and and it was it really was the fact that we would be on the road and saying, man, I wish I had this, man, I wish I had that. Uh, and it just seemed the more we looked, the more there was an opportunity. So having that first-hand knowledge of, of the pain of not being able to find the right gear was a real inspiration for us. Mm. So I understand Minal is built around not just certain products, like you have like a shirt and then you're working on a bag now. And then is the kind of the 
idea for the business to be in different parts of travel gear, or is there a vision you guys have that's different? The idea is that um, all of the products that that we do um, have to come out of out of the same mission. So um, we're not just into creating products for the sake of it. Um, it has to be following our, our underlying ethos, which is getting travelers where they want to be faster, happier, and more productive. And unless the products that we're developing match that and come you know, and are spawned by that, uh, then we don't want to do them. And, and that's where I think a lot of the big companies um, are lacking is because they are forced by their production schedule, by their quarterly reports to, to just release 150 new versions of a product uh, every season and it just really uh, has an impact on the on the suitability of those products and the the durability of them as well yeah one of the um advantages of being agile when you're smaller too right yeah exactly i think you've got to embrace um yourself as a challenger um if you can be flexible and uh and you're not beholden to shareholders then you may as well make use of it and and say okay we're going to make a bag that lasts for a really long time uh and because most companies won't do that because they want you know a planned obsolescence in a couple of years so they can sell you the new version of it yeah all right very cool and so let's get into your product lines a bit can you tell us a little bit about that yes uh, we're preparing three lines for launch in general uh we've got specialist merino socks merino wool socks um they come from from a very attractive sheep down in New Zealand, just to go into the stereotype a little. Um, not just merino wool socks that you would find at other places. They've just got added travel benefits like compression technology, sanitization treatment, uh, all that sort of stuff. We've got shirts that they look like stylish business casual shirts you could wear to a meeting, uh, but they act like travel shirts, so they're anti-odor, anti-crease, wickable, breathable, easy care, quick dry. Um, so they're the sort of shirts that I chuck in a regular wash in my washing machine and then actually put them on straight out of the machine and uh, that dry within a couple of minutes. So and, it's, and it doesn't wrinkle? Every every fabric wrinkles. So anything that says 100% wrinkle-free is is lying to you. Um, but the key... Unless it, was, unless it was polyester, like 100%, right, I guess. Even even poly... I mean, our, our shirts are 100% poly blend. Um, and still, you know, you cannot say... If you do something um, to a fabric, eventually, you know, you can make it wrinkle. But... What matters is uh, is getting a good enough feel and look that can compete against cotton, uh, while keeping um, keeping the the attributes that make it ideal for travel. So a lot of you know a lot of uh, cotton shirts out there look and feel great, but they're terrible to travel with because they hold your sweat, they smell. You can wear them once and then you're done. Um, a lot of travel shirts out there that you know have these attributes, but you would not wear them into a meeting uh they just look like travel shirts they look like you're wearing a sack almost so um that's the mix between the the business casual style and and the travel shirt technology that's built into it nice and what makes these socks special merino wool has a bunch of um, natural attributes so it's naturally antimicrobial uh it has really great heat management so um it keeps you you know cool when it's hot and hot when it's cool um they don't smell generally um and if they do smell you leave them out for a few hours and once they um, dry out they don't smell anymore so it's useful if you're trying to travel light um and like i say there's a bunch of compression technology so you can avoid things like deep vein thrombosis if you're traveling a lot flying a lot sanitization treatment which is antifungal so you know if you're prone to athlete's foot it really helps to have a, a pair of socks that that don't promote that or at least you know fight that 
there's a bunch of, of construction in them that is kind of a, a higher end sock. So, you know, I used to be a guy that bought $3 pairs of socks from the supermarket or three, three pairs for $3 or whatever it was. Uh, and now I'm, I'm, a, I'm slightly ashamed to admit I'm a sock snob. I pull on these socks that, that we're doing and I'm like, man, I couldn't go back because they, uh, they've got a, it won't mean anything to people, but they've got a split wire heel so that they don't slide off but they don't have a toe seam, so you don't get rubbing on your toes from the toe seam. Um, just, just a bunch of kind of high-end construction techniques that, that really make a difference once you, once you put them on. So this sounds like you're getting efficiency through technology almost, right? Exactly. We see travel very inefficient right now, and anything we can do to shave five minutes off there or cut a little bit of stress down there um, is, is really what we're trying to get at for, for the customers. Flagship launch product is a carry-on bag that's a backpack, but it opens out flat to pack like a suitcase so you can you know completely open it up flat on the ground we saw easy access to gear uh, as one of the main problems of a traditional carry-on size backpack uh, you know you're reaching in you look like a, a bit of a dick to be honest reaching in and you know trying to get the stuff out of your bottom of your bag um, so everything was designed with that in mind just having access to your gear while you're while you're on the road um, and also it's design wise it's a step above your average outdoor brand um you know, you've got to have the practicality of, of a backpack and that's the appeal of them. The idea is you wouldn't be embarrassed taking this thing into a meeting like you would be with, with outdoor brand gear. I see. So it's like a backpack that becomes a suitcase, but I can, it's style and to take into a meeting. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so who is the typical customer that you guys are going after? In our early um, testing phases and the sampling phases, it's been a lot of the the location independent crowd, the people that are working from the road like us, uh, especially for instance, the entrepreneurs in the Dynamite Circle community. Um, and that makes sense because that's where we come from. I mean, like I say, we are the young entrepreneurs living on the road um, and, and making products. So it makes sense that um, if we're making products to fill a hole that we found that our peers would also um, be interested in that. Uh, and so obviously we embrace them as a core group of peers, but we feel like it's a, a much wider potential appeal because the problems that we're solving matter to anyone who has to travel a lot. And, and it's especially people who mix work and pleasure. Those people more than anyone else are, are, uh, are obsessed with getting the right tools to, to speed them up through the security line or um, basically to, to get themselves where they want to be, um, like I say, faster, happier, and more productive. Yeah, and one thing I just want to bring up is that kind of like the location independent crowd is kind of very niche. And do you find that, that kind of it might be too small at first to just focus on this and kind of, you know, in the longer run, you need to focus on a bigger market or? Yeah, well, it depends on what, on what timeline you're talking. I think it's, it's incredibly valuable to have a core group, uh, a core niche that, that you can call on um, who you can say short term, okay, we've got 600 people with an easy access in this community. All of them are, are smart and savvy and really care about the sort of stuff that you're doing either in a business sense or in a just a product sense, in a consumer sense. So having that is in, insanely valuable. And then you say, okay, well, the things we're talking about with this niche, are they also applicable to a wider community? Can, can, can it scale beyond your personal relationships with these people? 
at the moment we feel like it can because as I say, these issues that we're facing, anyone who travels a lot, even if they're not in the location independent crowd, the lifestyle design crowd, if you travel a lot, you care about how fast you get through the airport. You don't want to check bags because you don't want to spend half an hour every time waiting for your bags. Yeah, that makes sense because I think like people that travel like once or twice a year, they'd be like, oh, okay, this is okay. But I think people that do it like multiple times a year. If you travel once a year, five minutes in a security queue saving, you know, saving that five minutes in a security queue doesn't matter to you that much. It's not that big a part of your life. But if you if you live on the road and you're traveling all the time, then five minutes per flight, that really adds up over yeah, a year. Exactly. All right, very cool. And so how did you come up with the design for the bag? Or like, how did you say, hey, you know, we're going to start a bag and where did you even start? Uh, other products suck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm exaggerating, but we really, like I said, we, we were on the road and we just had this real need for gear that didn't get in our way and didn't make us frustrated. So it really was just starting from there saying, what would we want in a bag? Making a super aggressive concept that um that was probably ridiculous and uh, and definitely changed throughout the process. But it was really important to set out initially super aggressive concept to then you know slowly bring it back into reality, you know uh, physical reality. But so so what do you mean by super aggressive concept? Since you brought it up, like basically, and I've had a lot of disagreements about this with people, but I think it's really important to have a a no limits concept at the start so say like if we if we wanted to make a bag and, and reality almost didn't apply you know like what what would we what would we do and so you get this crazy thing and like you know initially if you if you actually went through this concept it'd end up like the homer simpson car i don't know if you know that but you know homer simpson gets the designer car and he just like chooses everything and it comes in and it looks terrible and you know no one wants to use it having that initial uh, outrageous kind of far out um, concept when you bring it back in when you say okay well that's not realistic okay well that's just something that the two of us like and no one else likes Um, slowly whittling it away I think you've still got something kind of special from that no limit thinking at the start it's really important for us to say well, here's some here's some really ambitious stuff. Um, we're not going to let ourselves be limited by what people have done before or what people say you can and can't do. Once you actually start working it backwards to some sort of um, viable production model, you've still got those little nuggets in there that were that were probably brought about by the the no limits thinking at the start. Yeah, and I think it's the counterpart is that there's the other school of thought where that you start with something then you build onto it as feedback comes in, right? I guess kind of there's two approaches to this thing. And it probably depends on your on your mindset. I mean, we didn't know much about much when we started, so it was very easy to say, well, like, let's just create this bag that, you know, because we didn't know anything that, any reason not to do the things that we were doing. So um, we always knew that we'd be taking on feedback. It was definitely more exciting for us to say, let's get crazy aggressive at the start and then bring it back slowly rather than just being super simple and, and adding to it from there. Gotcha, gotcha. And so what were some kind of the things that you realized that you needed to scale back from the first aggressive concept? That's a good question. I'd have to go back and look at the sketches. I believe at one point it essentially, it was so minimalist it looked like a a sack. It was just kind of a sack of straps that went around your shoulders, you know, and that was the, that was like this super minimalist style one. And then we had the, you know, super lightweight one and all that sort of stuff. And um, eventually it just kind of melds together and you say, okay, this, this is unrealistic because 
for instance, people don't want to wear a sack on their back. But, you know, the the idea of keeping it as lightweight as possible was something that we bought through from that side of things. And and you work out what you really need to keep in when you're when you're taking it from a sack, you say, okay, well what are we adding, you know, what feature are we adding back in and is that really necessary? I see. So how many physical concepts have you worked through for the bag? Uh, we're on our fourth prototype and we're just about to do the final sample run, which is a, about um, 10 or 15 units uh, so yeah we had a we had an in- initial prototype with a designer and then we're on the third prototype stage with a manufacturer I see and so from the first concept to first prototype how many changes did you guys go through well I mean if you mean individual component changes somewhere near a million <laughs> we, we had this classic moment where after the first the first prototype with the manufacturer we sat down with them and we're like this is great. We really love this. And here's everything that you need to change and then sat there for an entire day just going through like, well, this zip needs to be like this and, you know, this puller needs to be like that and, you know, not quite the right shade of gray or whatever it was. So I think they were a little shell-shocked because most companies come in um, and they've got two days with the factory to turn around changes on, say, 150 new units, uh, new models for the season. And you can imagine how much time that gives you um, for each one. And so for us to be living in Vietnam for three months or so and working closely with the factory each time, each time we had a new prototype, yeah, it was a very intensive process and it took them a little while to, to get used to how much um, feedback we were giving on just one model, but eventually they they kind of got on board with it and I think eventually even started enjoying it. I see. So let's back up a little bit. So you guys are making the bags in Vietnam. You know, how did you end up in Vietnam in the first place? We ended up in Vietnam because... Everyone in the industry said if you want to get bags made with quality and scale, uh, Vietnam is making the best ones. They, they have the best technology, um, they have the most capability, and they have the most ability to scale. So you can find uh, quality bag makers you know, around the world. There's a bunch in the States. There's um, some in New Zealand as well. Uh, but pretty early on, our designer and, and other people in the industry said, if you want this to be more than kind of a, a hobby or um, a very small-scale operation, which we do, um, you need to you need to head across to Vietnam. Mm. And this is bags in terms of like backpacks, duffel bags, this type of gear, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, most of the bigger manufacturers in, around Asia and in Vietnam as well uh, have different um, – sections within the factory so you'll have a handbag section in one part of the country maybe and a, a, a travel section and a, a duffel section or whatever i see and so you know when you go to these factories saying you want to make a bag like how do you tell them what material you want or like did you guys have an idea already or yeah we we thought we had an idea um it's been a continual learning process because like i say when we started out we we knew very little about anything so um I like to think of us as inspiration for the ignorant. Working with a super veteran designer who really knew his stuff, like got us on the road and we took that prototype uh, across the factory. And then it's like a kid in a candy store. You've got a million different options for for fabrics, a million different options for zips. Then it was just like pairing back those options. Um, You turn up at the factory and you say, okay, well, here's what we're doing. And they make the first prototype. And by then you've kind of learned a bit more about the process, talk to people, ask them what they like about bags. And then you start talking to the factory about what fabrics might suit that. And, and yeah, it's basically 
we just had a huge document of changes each time and and after each prototype that document is kind of halved in length so now we're right down to like you know the last one had just five or six changes that we wanted to make and and we're basically basically done with that but um it's it's one of those things that every single time you get a prototype you are blown away by how much more you you know about the process i see and so every time you get a prototype are you guys just still testing this product for like a week or two before you change it or kind of how do you go through the different changes it was actually a perfect situation for us because um we we would get a prototype first thing we'd do is take a look at it uh in the factory and then we'd head back lock ourselves away in a cave for 24 hours and just go through it inch by inch and and work out what we um what we thought and what the changes we'd make were and so just getting that uh that kind of virgin impression on on ourselves just to make sure that we knew where we stood on things and then we would go out into Saigon which is where a lot of um entrepreneurs and and business people are at the moment um it's a great base uh so so we went out and just pounded the streets going and seeing people and taking <laughs> taking the bag to clubs and restaurants and um, street beers and all things like that and and talking to these people who who really live that life they they care about this stuff and and we were super lucky to be able to just walk around and say hey what do you think of this and sometimes the biggest breakthroughs would come through it two o'clock in the morning over a few beers and just talking about zips or um, drink holders or something like that because the people that we were talking to are the ones that that are going to use this product. So um, that was that was probably the most important thing for us. Mm-hmm. And so how do you process the feedback that they give you? Just say, so you're just going around to like say, Dan, you're like, hey, Dan, you know, take a look at this. What do you think? And so you know, how do you process all this different feedback from what people tell you? I would say, as hard as it is, just remove 95% of your ego. And, and save the 5% because you'll need it for later. I think you've you got to ship a product, and in our case, shipping a product just meant picking up the prototype from, from the manufacturer, take it to people, watch how they use it, say, okay, just like pack this or um, you know, play around with it and let me know what you think. And encourage brutally honest feedback. Like, Don't argue. That's the part of removing your ego. Don't, don't argue about what it is i mean you can provoke them and i love provoking people about this stuff but you you can't reject it straight off right you've just got to note it all down and then you go back and you iterate and the five percent of ego you need is knowing when to disregard that feedback that doesn't fit with your core mission or values i would say deciding which feedback to keep and which parts to throw away is probably one of the hardest things in the entire process it's a kind of a dark art you need to you need to have a sense of your core mission and values to be able to to process it while simultaneously like completely prostrating yourself in front of people and saying please rip me apart <laughs> and do you have an example of kind of one feedback that you took and one that you disregarded um so uh well we had a at one stage of the process kind of halfway through um we had a, a neoprene drinks holder a girl i live with um who is very knowledgeable about bags uh said to me look the great thing about your bag is it's so durable. Like it's you know you've you've invested in super high quality fabric, super high quality zips and straps and all that sort of thing. That neoprene is going to diminish and you will uh, you will have trouble with it. It'll be you know after two years the bag will be completely fine and the drinks holder will look terrible. This is like on the side, like how you can stuff like a bottle in a bag. Is this what it is or? Yeah, that's the one. The the one that sits on the side and and a lot of a lot of companies do use neoprene and you know it has its benefits, but 
it was a good point that with the increased durability of our bag, that was going to be the thing that that um, messed up first. So uh, her idea was one that you have, uh, you know, uh, a sleeve made of the same fabric as the bag, so it's just as durable. But inside that, you have a drawstring like a bungee cord that you can um, change to different sizes for uh, different size bottles. And so not only is it more flexible than having like a, a bit of neoprene stuck there, it's going to last for longer. And um, you, so you're not going to be unhappy with this thing kind of um, messing up. Yeah, because I noticed I have one of these bags and it's like a Nike one, but then it, it's all stretched after like a year and a half. This is like what you're talking about, right? Exactly. So so that was one thing that we took on board. Uh, one thing I guess we rejected was there are a bunch of people out there who want wheels on their bags. And that's cool. And, you know, um, we, we respect people of all um, preferences. But in the end, we didn't want wheels. Um, if you're traveling carry-on only, especially, say it's 10 kilos or however many pounds that is, um, you've got 10 kilos of, of allowance. I don't want to take up three or four kilos of that with wheels. It's just they're not that important to me. Um, so we figured that, that there are plenty of wheeled luggages out there and, and we could – we would only be sacrificing part of our appeal um, by by putting token wheels on a on a backpack. It just didn't seem to make sense for us. Yeah, it doesn't even look cool too to have a backpack with wheels on it. It's just like it just doesn't make sense. A victory of a, of practicality over style in one in one sense. And and I, I mean I've I've never found those things comfortable. I've always had the wheels digging into my back or whatever. So I just personal experience led us to think that they weren't for us. And and a bunch of people want wheels, but but that's just not who. In the end, that's not who we were, um, who we were attracting. So, how do you decide when the five percent ego you need to decline certain feedback? Then, so you're saying which? How do you decide which feedback you need to decline? Yeah, it's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> it's it. That's why I say it's a dark art. It's it's a really intangible thing. I mean, you need to develop some sort of heuristics to to try and help yourself, and that that will really. Uh, help so so we say okay is this feature helping people get where they want to be faster happier and more productive and a lot of stuff goes inside that so comfort can fit inside that and access to gear can fit inside that you know ease of access so so developing those heuristics and, and processes and, and missions and values really helps but it's still impossible like you you still at the end have to make a gut call on on what features uh, are useful to the wider public and what is just your ego getting in the way yeah, because you never know if someone says this that if they're right or wrong right i mean there's no way you can really tell too so. you can ask people in a wider setting you can ask a few hundred people in a forum okay well what do you think about this feature but again i mean you we were talking before about the the um, lifestyle design niche it's like well maybe those people care intensely about something and the rest of your market don't care about that so much so it's it's a real a gut check on, on a lot of stuff but all you can do is, is let that feedback guide your way and and try and process it through these through these little mission statements and um and decision making processes that you develop yeah it's almost like a striking a balance between like the creativity of your product the functionality and also making sure it's commercial enough to your customers too so I mean, there's no right or wrong way to do it. Like, it's something I'm trying to figure out, too. It's just interesting to see a different perspective on how you're doing it, too. So It's talking to people from day one, like showing them the concept from day one, and it will totally feel impossible at some point. Like I said before, you will feel like a million people are telling you a million different things, and you can kind of trawl through and find 
underlying comments. So, you know, one person wants this feature, one person wants that feature, but what do they have in common? Oh, well, it's not having those features slows you down when you're trying to get your laptop out in security queue. Oh, well, okay, well, we'll make it easy for people to get their laptop out in security queue. So it's, it's combining what people are complaining about at the moment and your creative solution to that problem. And I'd also just say as an addition, like don't, don't ignore your cave time. You know, we'd open ourselves up to hundreds of people giving us like their long complaint list about bags that they have or, or their ideas for our bags, which are awesome. Um, but then the crucial point was that we'd scurry away into our cave for a couple of weeks and, and then present a revised concept because you won't get anywhere if all you're doing is listening. You know, it's, uh, it's like there's a Derek Sivers quote I love, um, and it's, I may be paraphrasing a little bit. It's not inspiration until you actually do the work. And I think that applies to product feedback also. It's not, you, you're not creating a product until you actually engage with it and, and process it through your, your own decision-making process. Yeah. And so one thing that you touched upon is you actually have to dig deeper among the feedback you get too, right? Like you can't just take it on a surface level. Exactly. I mean, yeah, people, people are great at knowing what bugs them, but understandably, they are not always great at figuring out how to, how to fix it because that's our job, right? You know, a lot of the time you would, you would get specific feature feedback uh, or requests, but really it was more about, well, I get pissed off that my drink bottle leaks through into my bag, you know, or whatever it was. And, and you could say, okay, well, I've got a few of those comments now. It's obviously a bit of a problem. Like, do we make sure that A, we don't fall into that trap and B, you know, make it even better? It's identifying the underlying concepts that, that are fueling complaints or fueling feature requests is, is an important thing to yeah, do. Awesome. Martin. So let's shift gears a little bit. So I understand you guys are also launching a Kickstarter campaign for this bag. Tell us a little bit about that. For us, crowdfunding just makes sense as a small company. You know, you're working with manufacturers in this industry who have really high minimums for this sort of product. So it's like, a, it's a crazy stack of cash for a smaller company. And even if we did work for a few years to save that money and then drop it down, A, you're losing all that time. Uh, and B, you're throwing stacks of cash down on something that you haven't tested in a wider market. You've, you've gone and done what we've done, which is, is um, smaller scale testing. But um, I think Kickstarter functions or any sort of crowdfunding functions as that final market test for a new concept. It's like before we drop tens of thousands of dollars on this, on this high minimum item, why don't we see if people are actually going to buy this high minimum item? And, and you get that um, through the pre-sale of a, of a crowdfunding campaign. And the, the third thing that, that crowdfunding is really good for is especially Kickstarter is that it creates an easy initial marketing push. So instead of yelling into the wind, um, you, you get a little bit more cut through with Kickstarter because especially right now, um, people out there and also media are really focusing on the next big thing, which is usually coming through Kickstarter. And it provides an easy story for them or an easy headline. Mm-hmm. And so you're talking about minimum orders earlier. Like what kind of range are we looking at? Are we looking like at 100 bags, 500 bags, or like 1,000? Or? Most big manufacturers in this industry will go at 1,000. We're dealing with we're dealing with a, a number around that. I see. So it wouldn't make sense to plop down all this money just to get a thousand bags and then figure out how to sell it. Awesome, awesome. All right. And so you know, when have you guys, um, you know, are you guys ready to launch a Kickstarter soon at the time of this recording, or what's the timeline with that like? Uh, at the time of this recording, we're probably just under a month out. Um, it's still a little up in the air. Um, you, until you really launch, it's kind of hard to nail down a date. We're going to be working through the day and the night to. Uh, to get this this launched it's funny how much it takes over your life like i was 
I was up at 3 a.m. this morning uh, collecting branding files from my designer who just got back to London from Sweden and sending them through to the manufacturer before their end of day business because it was their deadline before they could print the fabric and all this sort of stuff. And it's just like, I mean, it's it's amazing like that I could be in uh, in the West Coast of the States and, and doing all this business from afar. And I really... I value that, but it still does require getting up at three o'clock in the morning and sending computer files through to Vietnam. Exactly. All right, so let's go over Kickstarter a little bit. So how does this work in a nutshell for people who might not be familiar? Uh, essentially, you create a product, then you create a product page, and then people buy into that product. So uh, you need to go through a lot of work if you want to be successful. There's, there's a lot of Kickstarters out there um, that really don't do the work beforehand and they almost always fail. So give yourself a long timeline. Like We've given ourselves a long time and it's still not enough. So you need to create a project page with a lot of um, writing about your product, a lot of nice photography. The most important thing is the video. You have to create a video that probably shouldn't be more than three minutes long. And you have to, another major part of it is creating reward tiers. So if someone wants to donate a dollar, um, if someone wants to donate $10, they can. For us, I think the major focus is on, is on selling, um, selling as many bags to as many people as possible uh, because we want to get it out there and we want people to, to get an experience of this thing. So um, for us, the idea is that we give people who are willing to, to put money down early for us a nice discount on the recommended retail price, um, which is, is pretty much part of the course for Kickstarter. Generally get on physical products, um, Kickstarters, you generally get a decent discount for donating in the pre-sale phase. It's not just as Kickstarter themselves said, they released a blog post saying Kickstarter is not a store. And despite the fact that physical products get the most press and the most money uh, a lot of the time on, on Kickstarter, they've got a bunch of different compartments to their little operation. I mean, they've got film and art and media and dance and, you know, a, a whole bunch of fashion. You know, there's, there's a whole bunch of different areas of Kickstarter that you can go into. So, like I say, it's, it's really smart for small, for small businesses to go in there and, and market test that product and, and create a little, little bit of buzz around the launch of it as well. Yeah, and I understand Kickstarter is all or nothing campaign too right it is yeah so if people pledge and you don't reach your funding goal they don't give you that money they're not forced to give you that money so um, if you ask for a hundred thousand dollars you got ninety nine thousand dollars and you ran out of time because the 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 launch campaigns are um, between 30 and 60 days long if you don't make that funding goal that you set yourself no one takes any money from anyone so you're back to square one. So it's, it's a really, uh, again, talking about dark arts, it's a really dark art picking a, a level of funding that's high enough to, to sustain the project, but also um, attractive enough and, and easy enough to hit. I see. And I guess, would it be smart to work with a lower number but get oversubscribed? Or? That's a million-dollar question or thousand-dollar question or whatever it is. It's, uh, yeah, there's strategies to that. But um, you first thing you should do is, like, completely cover your ass don't don't be tempted to like i don't know put put cash up yourself or it depends what you're doing i guess but for us we've spent years and and a lot of money um developing this so the last thing we want to do is end up throwing down you know tens of thousands of dollars to subsidize uh, an undersubscribed launch yeah it makes sense because i know kickstarter they take like a percentage amazon takes a percentage and you also have to include your shipping 
yeah. in the pledge too. So basically, like your numbers have to line up, and so because there's one thing too, like there's I think it's one thing to see a project that's thirty percent funded versus something that's like eighty or ninety, and then it like tempts you to just you know support it, and then it goes over the edge, and so it's a lot of different strategies, and it's just again, it's a gut check of of how you feel like it should work. You've got to do the numbers, make sure you're covered for all all eventualities and then and then cross your fingers in a lot of ways. And you're right, Kickstarter do take five percent of all of the money that you raise and then Amazon takes between three and five percent as credit card fees. So um, you're looking at yeah, you're looking at between eight and ten percent of that money um, going straight out the door. And then, yeah, like you say, shipping has to be thought about as well. Do you just ship to, say, the U.S. or do you ship worldwide? Um, do you include shipping in the price uh, in the pledge level? Or do you say, okay, international people have to pay 20 bucks extra or whatever it is um, to kind of get a more payers, uh, a user pays system going? Yeah, it almost seems like, like, do you want to build that in or do you want to separate it? Like, it's a whole other game to play too. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, we're looking at, at building it in. It just becomes messy when you're having to say, well, some people need to pay this for shipping, some people need to pay that. The advice we've got is try and make the post-Kickstarter work as streamlined as possible because it's always going to be more complicated than you expect uh, fulfilling all those orders. So anything you can do to not only cut down hassle for other people, but cut down hassle for you is uh, is a really valuable thing. I mean, if you're if you're asking people to choose something that takes them five minutes to choose, like all of that, for every customer, that's going to build up and then come right back on you and you're going to have to be chasing up people who haven't made the right choice or haven't understood something or whatever. So the more you can, uh, the more you can streamline it for, for your uh, funders, for your backers, the, the simpler it becomes for you to fulfill that order as well. Yeah. Um, ideally, you want it to be like, hey, boom, you know, pledge, boom, option, choose, and then boom, you send it. Whereas kind of if you have like different options, you need to like follow up with the survey and, you know, confirm like where they live, international shipping is, and then like say you have a hundred people, you need to chase 10 people. It just creates a whole process that you need to go through too. So. The way that uh, Kickstarter is going in terms of the, uh, not, not the official Kickstarter ethos, but the people who have been launching projects is that there are a lot of um, extra little things that have been built on that actually make this more difficult. So say something like stretch goals. So stretch goals are when, say, you've reached your funding level and you say, okay, um, we've got $50. If we reach $100,000, we'll introduce like a different type of bag that you get bundled in with this bag. And I'll just hasten to add that's what we're planning on doing. But the whole thing is that if you have got that completely sorted before you actually launch the the campaign it's going to be a nightmare and i actually talked to the kickstarter crew about it they, they you know they've got some bad press for projects kind of fulfilling late or not fulfilling at all and they said a big problem has been stretch goals that were were announced and then not then totally destroyed the whole process for the for the project creator so they really advise against it and there's there's a few little things like that that you've just really got to be careful of like don't don't just go in and copy what everyone else does um it can be really valuable it does provide another incentive for people to fund you but it's just it's something you have to be very um you have to be very aware of the of the ramifications of it before you announce it. Yeah, like I think people will think, hey, let's just set a stretch goal for fun, and if we hit it, we'll figure it out. But then you actually hit it, and then you're like, oh shit, like, <laughs> what do I do now? We thought it would cost twenty bucks to actually cost one hundred and fifty bucks. We're in a bit of trouble here, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, very cool, very cool. All right, and so let's just wrap things up a little bit. So, kind of like moving into some mindset topic. You know, what's one thing you wish you knew starting out? 
I would flip it around and I'd say I'm glad I didn't know this was supposed to be impossible. Um, and it's something I, I talked about before, the um, inspiration for ignorant people. <laughs> it's like having a healthy sense of ignorance has been a real positive for us, not coming from within the industry and not knowing what was the right and the wrong thing to do uh, in a lot of ways has been a real a really beneficial thing uh, because we weren't sitting around saying, oh, we can't do that because of this. We're just like, okay, let's think of this crazy bag idea and then talk to people and they can tell us it's crazy and then we'll like slowly bring it back. And I mean, I would, I guess I would just have a caveat of don't stay ignorant for too long. Like ask a lot of questions of everyone that you meet and, and everyone that knows more than you and work on that ignorance. But, but it does, it does help um, to either be ignorant or, or forget about all those things that you're not supposed to do, at least in the in the early stages. Mm-hmm. And so what's the biggest business lesson you've learned so far? It's more of a lesson about humans, I guess. It's like people are almost always willing to help um, in business or in, in life. In a business sense, if you can find peers and help them in any way you can and uh, be a positive person who's doing cool stuff that they really believe in and you surround yourself with that same type of person it's going to change your business and it's going to change your life uh you won't you won't regret it awesome and so where can we find you online you can go to our website uh it's www.manal.com it's m-i-n-a-a-l.com and that's that's really our ground zero um it's best if you sign up for the newsletter because that's where most of our updates happen um, and yeah, hang out and send us a message and let us know what you think. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Jimmy. And uh, we'll keep in touch and let us know how the Kickstarter goes. To get more information about running an online store, visit our website at buildmyonlinestore.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Build My Online Store podcast.